Good morning. Nice to see you. I'm glad you're here. Um, in fact, I'm really glad you're here. Really glad. Um, can I say it this way? You need to be here. I, I've, I, I didn't even always used to say that. When we, when we first launched uh, Vista back in 2007, uh, we had a pretty strong value. <laughs> this is crazy to think about. That you didn't need to be in church. You know, sometimes you get kind of caught in sort of the routine and the ritual of even good things and forget that there's um, uh, this greater mission that's going on um, and, that, and, that, and that Jesus is, is with us always and, and that, that he is the Sabbath, right? He taught us. It's like it's, the Sabbath isn't something that you go to or something you do. I am the Sabbath. So, so we talked a lot about what it meant, and it was, you know, maybe it was just the nature of the circumstances that we were in. We didn't have a building. <laughs> so, you know, we're like, we didn't have a building. So this is what you do. It's like, well, they aren't important. <laughs> you know, if I don't have it, then it must not be. And, and maybe just, maybe just I'm, um, growing up, or maybe times have changed so dramatically. Because the reason I say, I'm glad you're here and you need to be here, is I, I, I want to say this, that, that the world seems more uncertain and more chaotic and more unpredictable and uh, with, with fewer uh, foundations upon which to stand than maybe ever. Uh, that's what it feels like. You know, the reality is the world never provides what Jesus does. It's, it is chaotic. We're just living in denial sometimes. You know what I mean? But for what it's worth, um, and maybe it's a season, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be encouraging us as a congregation to buck the trends of uh, diminishing church attendance and be here all the time, every week, because... I, we need the fundamental reminders of truth and we need the, we need the encouragement of one another, maybe more now than, now than ever. You need it, maybe. I, I, don't, I don't know how to say that differently. Um, it's not like a guilt thing. Like, you have to be here. Like, I have to be really, be really careful as a pastor. If I see someone that I haven't seen for quite some time, maybe you've even fallen into this category, and I see you, like, at a grocery store or something like this, I'll go, I haven't seen you for a while. That translates instantly. You, you get that. It means, and you're like, you're like, oh, I need to get back to church. I know I haven't been there. It's like, oh, 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 no, I'm not saying that. What I mean when I say I haven't seen you for a while is I haven't seen you for a while. That's all. It doesn't mean, well, you haven't been attending church enough, you know. But I, I almost feel like that's the message at this point. Like, we just need to be here, don't we? I, I think we do. How, so let me ask you, uh, how did the test go this week? How'd your test go? How did it go? How'd the test, the test go? We've been talking about the test of life. How did it go? Did you pass? Did you fail? Did you, how'd you get to be mine? How'd it go? Did you remember there was a test? Did you forget? The easiest way to fail a test is forget that there is one. Anybody been there? 
oh, it's the worst situation, you know, <laughs> just days kind of cranking along, you get up, maybe you're even ahead of the schedule today, and you got to school, and <laughs> you ready for the test? How did it go? Um, so here's what we've learned. In the case, like when we look, we look at um, Mark chapter 1, life of Jesus, before we get out of that chapter, Jesus is in the, Jesus is in the middle of a test. Uh, the temptation in the wilderness, the wilderness temptation of Jesus, is a test. And we see some things that are important for us to just drill into our hearts and minds. This, this moment in history that, that we have because Jesus himself passed it along. He was out there alone, right? It could have been just a personal experience that he journaled about and never told anybody about, but he told this story in great detail because we need to know what happened out there with him. So here's some things. The test of life is orchestrated by a very, very good God. There's not enough varies for that. It's orchestrated by God, this test. How often do we find ourselves thinking that the circumstances and the challenges and the struggles of life uh, mean that God is absent, that he doesn't care? It's orchestrated by God. The test of life. And the test is, right there, to be seen, are we going to trust that God is good? Are we going to doubt him? Are we going to put him on trial? Jesus said, no, I don't, we don't, this, is a, this isn't a test of God. He's not on trial. He's a very, very good God. We, we have to be very careful. Part of the test is, is whether or not we, have, um, we maintain this posture that no matter what the circumstances are, doesn't change who God is. And we, and we allow our faith to rest in that space no matter what. We don't allow the circumstances to dictate who God is. So... On that front, how did, how did it go? How'd you do this week when the storms came, when the challenges came, when the pain came, when the... Did you lose your faith that God is, God is good and he cares about me? Were you able to stay there? If you did, then you're doing okay on the test. The second one is harder to, even harder than that one to, the test of life and within it, evil is, evil is leveraged by God in the test. This is a tough one for us to get our heads around. We, we've talked about this. The Spirit of God rested on Jesus, and the voice of God said, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. It's, we love that picture of the Spirit, this Spirit of peace and affirmation and anointing. And then, in a matter of 
moments, that same spirit is driving Jesus into the teeth of evil, right out into the wilderness where Satan will tempt Jesus. And it's part of God's orchestration. Put this together. It's hard for us to get around. The winds of evil in our life are consistently blowing, constantly. And evil is whispering in the wind, there is an easier route to take here. I, I can extract you from these circumstances. If, if you do things my way, if you do things my way, you'll have what you need. You'll have what you want. Evil is consistently, constantly seducing us to dismiss our faith in God and instead embrace a different way. The winds of evil are always whispering, you, you should rely on yourself. You can't trust anybody else but you. Even God is not... Look at your circumstances. How could you trust this God? You better just work your way out of this on your own. You know you're going to feel a lot better about yourself if you just go after that possession, that popularity, that provision. Don't trust God to provide everything you need. You, you got to go get it. And if you can get it, even though it's temporary, yeah, I think evil's not usually, like, look, it's, even though it's temporary, it's going to feel great. It really is. You should just escape. Follow me. We see within this test of the wilderness this ongoing, relentless lying of evil, and it is the fog in which we Lose or choose our faith in God. So here's another thing we see. Okay, well, I should pause. How are you doing? This is the second question on the test of life. Did you hear? Were you, were you cognizant of the whispers to pull you away from God? Hunger plays an integral part in the passing of the test. If you're not willing and courageous enough to be hungry, you won't even get started. You won't get out of the blocks of passing the test. Jesus was like starving to death, and in that space, he was able to detect and hear and, and resist the devil. Were you, did you allow yourself to be hungry this week? Whether, whether food or uh, consumerism, like this whole past week is about not being hungry, isn't it? Everything's cheaper, apparently. Black Friday starts on, I don't know when. 
<laughs> Friday, yeah. You can have this and you can eat that. I mean, just the pile of stuff in front of us this week is just... If you're not hungry, it's pretty hard to hear what's going on. It's pretty hard to hear God. It's pretty hard to recognize evil. How did you do this week? Did you, did you allow yourself some time to be hungry? I'm going to read from a, a letter that we don't really know the, how original this is. In fact, we think it's not all that original. It's why it's not in the Bible. But it's attributed to, to one of the disciples, Thomas. So you take this with a grain of salt. This isn't scripture. This is better than any book you're going to get truth from apart from scripture, in my opinion. And you'll hear how this resonates. This, this letter that is in, from antiquity in some point is somebody that was close or understood Jesus was just writing down things that they remembered. And listen to this. If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not observe the Sabbath, you will not see the Father. The Sabbath is just like fasting. You realize that. The Sabbath is, is I'm taking a time out from everything that gives me significance. Our work gives us our significance. Our, our ability to consume gives us significance. Our ability to engage in the economy gives us our significance. And so to Sabbath is to fast, not from food, but from everything else that we pursue. If you don't fast, you're not going to find the king. If you don't observe the Sabbath, you're not going to see the Father. And then... Jesus is quoted as having said this, and we don't know. Like I said, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but it sounds like something Jesus would say. He said, I took my stand in the midst of the world, and in flesh I appear to them. Well, that's true. I found them all drunk, and I did not find any of them thirsty. So it's being said there. We're the opposite of hungry. We're just gluttonous. <laughs> We're just drunk on everything. I don't, I don't know if you can't be drunk on one level in, in American society, you know? We're just... I've told you this story before. I try to fight this tendency, and they go in, is it Speedway? Is it Speedway? Justin knows this. Uh, if you go to Speedway, you can buy one piece of pizza and give you one free. And I don't ever eat more than like one piece of pizza as a snack. So I go up to the thing and I have one piece of pizza and I buy it and they say, the second one's free. And I say, I don't want that. And they're like, it's free. I know, I don't want it. I don't want it. It's mind-blowing to them. But it's free. If it's free, you should take it and eat it. No, actually, I just want one. This is antithetical. It's like confusing. I found them all drunk. I didn't find any of them thirsty. When they shake off their wine, then they'll change their ways. How did you do on the test this week? Were you hungry? Did you allow yourself to go without? It's good practice. It's a great practice. 
You just don't, don't go hungry just to go hungry. You don't, go, you don't buy the thing just to not buy the thing. You, you, you skip the meal and you don't buy the thing. And you say, God, this is, a, this is a moment and an exercise and an action dedicated to you. I want to willingly walk into this abnormal space because I want to detect the voice of evil and I want to reaffirm my confidence in you. Uh, lastly, at least this morning, maybe not the only four lessons we've learned, but this lesson, the test of life reveals the truth about the one tested. This is the most uncomfortable part about tests. Is they tell us who we are. They tell us what we know or what we can do. The test is a set of circumstances or challenges that in, as we engage them, we learn about ourselves. That's the main reason we don't lean into the test. It's embarrassing. Life is an inescapable test. It's a test uh, as to whether or not we see the truth. How clearly do you see it today as opposed to yesterday and the day before. How clearly do you see the truth? How much more clearly do you know uh, what God is trying to say? How much better do you know Jesus today than you did yesterday? That is the ultimate purpose of the test, to expose the truth, yet to see more of it, and then to live according to it, That's the, another, t- we don't want to hear the truth because it's offensive. It, it, it shows me my insufficiencies. It also then sets me up to, to know what I'm supposed to do, and I'd rather not know that because this is so much more fun over here. The test tells us who we are, who we're not, and tells us how we're doing, and how we're not doing. Tells us whether we're on the right path, whether we're walking God's way and God's direction. This is what Jesus taught not too much longer after the test in the wilderness. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's shocking to hear. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, many of you are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? You could go on. Didn't we feed the hungry? Didn't we love our, our spouse? Didn't we do these things? Then I'll tell them very plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's the difference here? Who, who isn't an evildoer and who is one who is truly living and entering into the kingdom? The one who does the will of the Father, which by, like, by, by contrast or maybe by definition is the one who doesn't do their own will. <laughs> That's the one. The one who sees the truth, understands the truth about themselves, understands the way of God and Jesus and, and goes that way and not our way. 
It means giving up what I've come to love. It means giving up uh, what I have. It means being, being willing to walk away from anything that Jesus would ask us to walk away from. It, it means giving up on some level what I want, what I may think I need. It, it may mean giving up where I'm headed. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, if you're going to flourish as a, as a human, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a, a, a core reality that is one of peace and contentment and courage and wisdom, if you're going to live the way of the king in the kingdom, we have to change course. If you pass the test, if you took the test, the result is you woke up a little bit and you're moving in a different direction. The big, the big purpose for the test is to see the truth. It's a pretty big deal if you can see it. And the truth is that there is far, far, far more to life and far more to the future than what we see and what we touch and when we feel. This is, the part, this is the part that's the hardest to get our head around. That what we, all that we have in terms of senses are not the best indicator or the best teller of the truth about what is in life. It is more than what we see. And to humbly recognize that we've fallen more in love and more in line with this world than that one. To pass the test on a daily basis is to go, oh, wow. What seems so right isn't. What seems so real isn't. What comes so naturally isn't best. Oh, oh. The winds of evil are always blowing. If you don't feel the wind... What does that mean? They're always blowing. If you don't feel the wind, what does that mean? What? It's at your back, or you're just caught up in it, <laughs> right? That's the only time you don't feel the wind, when it's just carrying you away. Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15 after the test, this is what happens next. John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance isn't a major theme in popular Christianity. It should be, of course. 
Popular Christianity says, I have found my way to Jesus and I have arrived. And now all is good, all is well. I'm on the right track. Just true in a macro sense. But in a micro practical sense, we are in constant need of repentance. Who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the people of God, the people that were inside the circle. Constantly looking outside the circle, telling people they needed to repent. They never looked in the mirror and said, repent. And Jesus is talking right to his very own people, saying, y'all need to repent. Just think about the context of this. John was put in prison. He was a preacher and a prophet who said what? Repent. That was his whole message. Repent. (laughs) Repent. And he ends up in jail and in short order is going to suffer a brutal death. And Jesus comes out of the wilderness, which is where John hung out a lot, and says what? Repent. (laughs) You see what's going on? Jesus was living a life that we don't know a ton about for 30 years. Loved his family, loved his work. You know, you can love your family and love your work and not be out of alignment with God. There is a a way to flourish in this world. God created world. We do it poorly and wrongly. But there is a lot to enjoy in a godly way in this world. And I would say maybe more than anybody, Jesus was really enjoying life. To take that away from him is to dehumanize him. To say that a person can't live a wonderfully beautiful, joyful life in the midst of all that life is, is to deny God's creation is good through and through. Jesus had 30 years of life, and now he's picking up the message of John the Baptist, which got him thrown in jail and ultimately killed. This is one of my favorite scenes. If I'd have thought of it soon enough, I'd have had the clip for you. Uh, it's from an old movie with Matthew Broderick called uh, Glory. It's about one of the first um, African-American platoons that fought uh, successfully in many ways. And um, as any good war movie does, it spends time looking at the leadership within that space and how you deal with real life, broken life, broken dreams, the challenges of life and death, the experience of life and death. And um, it's the story of bravery out of cowardice, conviction out of chaos. This is my favorite scene. They're getting ready to march into a battle they are going to lose. They're going to get wiped out. It's their job to be the first in. And they're going to get wiped out. And Matthew Broderick, whatever, I don't know his name was in the movie. He's walking to the front of his platoon and they're cheering for him because he has 
given them more than they've ever experienced in life, confidence and respect and courage. And he gets to the front and he turns around and he looks and he's teary-eyed because he's so proud of these men. And typically I stop it right here if I'm talking to leaders and I say, what do you say right now? What do you say right now to a group of people who have sacrificed, who have, and that have now lined up ready to follow you to their demise? What do you say to them? And he points to the guy carrying the flag, the banner. And the banner in, in, in that time, in that space, was the rallying point. The, the, with all the smoke and the explosions and the earth flying and, and bodies, you, you had to find that banner and you had to keep following that banner in order to stay on course for your mission. So he says, if this man should fall, who will pick up the banner? And the, the guy you would least expect the guy that had come the longest way in terms of cowardice to courage, Thomas, I'll carry it. And you could just see that leader going, oh, this moment. He gets it. If this man should fall, this is what's happening. John has carried the banner of repentance. John has carried the banner. This world is leading you astray. You, you need to see what's going on and change course. You think you're godly. You think you know him. You, you think you're on course. You think your obedience means something more than it does. You need to repent. And he gets thrown in jail and eventually murdered. And Jesus picks up that banner, <laughs> goes right out there and says, repent. He's the next target. Did Jesus, did Jesus have to repent in the garden? No, absolutely not. 100% not. No, no, no. Had he had need of repentance, he would have uh, uh, become uh, sinful. He would have bought into the lies. He would have taken the wrong course. He would have uh, trusted the, the, the whispers of evil rather than the word of God. And he would have, if he would have had to repent, he would have suddenly been incapable of being the Messiah. He absolutely did not have to repent. But he did and is the path of repentance, right? So here's the wrong path, and here's the right path. Jesus did not get on the wrong path, but he is the right path. So when Jesus says, repent and believe, it's really almost no different than what he says in the next paragraph, which we'll get to at some point, to the first disciples, which is what? Follow me. That's the same thing. Repent and believe is, I am the one to follow. Believe that. Follow me. Which following me means stop going this way and go this way. 
He never had to repent, but he is the path of our repentance. It's a, very, it's a monumental shift for the people of God. It's very exciting, really, in one sense, if they, if they get it. That's why so many people were willing to go that direction. This is a very good for people that had a hard time getting on any sort of right path at all. A lot of God's people felt as though they were on the right path. A lot of people were made to feel as though they couldn't even do it if they kept trying. And Jesus was saying, I can get you on the right path. You have to follow me. This is very exciting. How long I've been preaching at this point? Anybody know? I forgot to take note of what time I started. I know it in 52 minutes. Is it? Nobody knows? Well, then good. You aren't even paying attention to the time. I love that. In that case, we're going to read through Deuteronomy. Okay? <clears throat> we are, actually. I want you to see something. That this message isn't all that new, although it is uh, critically different in some key places. In Deuteronomy, which is uh, in the Torah, it's one of the five books of, uh, one of the, five, the first five books of the Bible, um, Moses uh, wrote it. And at this point in time, they have been um, uh, rescued from their slavery in Egypt, and they have been led around the wilderness for, wilderness for 40 years by God in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire. And it's at the end of that 40 years, and Moses is not going to be the one to lead them into the promised land because of his own failures, his own inadequacies. And so he's at the point now where they're going to go in and he's, he's challenging them about their future. And in chapter 4 he says, now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to form, perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Don't add to the word which I am commanding nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. He's saying, look, <laughs> we've been working on this for 40 years. You need to obey. And then he spends the next 25 chapters just about just rehashing all of that law. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to obey. You need to obey. Then you get to chapter 28. He says again, now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. If you obey, you're going to be lifted up. All the blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he goes on for about 15 verses of all the sorts of blessings that come about as a result of obedience. So remember, this is, like the, this is like the locker room speech that Moses has given before they just go into the game. And he's saying, here's what you got to do. You just got to obey and you're going to win. You're going to be racking up stats like you can't imagine. This is going to be unbelievable. Look at all these blessings. And then in verse 19, he says, Cursed shall you be when you come in, uh, when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. 
The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, and then you perish quickly. <laughs> if you do not obey the Lord to, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, with I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. This speech has gone horribly bad. What is Moses saying to them? He goes on to say, and, 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 but, when you, but when you return to the Lord, when you repent, uh, he, will, he will take you back from all the nations to which you've been scattered. Scattered. Moses is saying to them, unequivocally, I'm telling you to obey. And I know you're not going to do it. I know you well enough. I've watched you for 40 years. You cannot do it. At best, you have a cyclical approach to this whole thing. Sometimes you believe and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Now, what's shocking is there's 15 verses of, of uh, blessings and there's like something like 50 verses of curses. He doesn't expect this to go well. He's like, I've tried for 40 years. It's generations. If you obey, you will live. It's not you will be rescued. They're already rescued. They're out of Egypt. They're out of saved. They've been saved. He's speaking to saved, redeemed people and saying, obey so that you can live, so that you can flourish, so that you can be all that God intended you for, to be in this world, in the land that God has chosen for you. But you're not going to make it. You're, you're going to end up dispersed again. Chapter 30. I'm going to read quite a bit here because this is, this is really pivotal. And then, um, we're, seriously, how long have I been preaching? Huh? What time did I start? 10? I'm at 38 right now. Hmm, okay. <clears throat> so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, right? It's like, you will have failed. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples. When you, when you repent, we never, ever, ever get away from this reality of needing to repent. But listen to what happens in verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is a shocking revelation by Moses. What, what Moses is realizing after 40 years of leading them in the wilderness is, although it's within their capacity to obey, and he'll get to that in a second, God has to do something because it's a heart issue. God has to, for the Jews that understood circumcision as a, and was a physical mark of their belonging to, to God, Moses saying, he's going to have to mark your heart 
You have to do something to your heart. So that, and interesting, not just live, right? Did you catch that? What happens? To love God. What Moses understands is this is an issue of love. This is an issue of heart. It's not strictly an issue of obedience. And God is going to do something and will need to do something that changes your heart so that you love him. Because if you love somebody, you obey them, right? When you obey somebody, you don't necessarily love them. You do it sometimes through gritted teeth. But if you love and have been marked by love, and your heart's been changed to be able to receive that love and give that love and to be loved by God, that changes the whole narrative. Catch the end of this chapter. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at, uh, I didn't mark it. Let me just read it from here. Um, now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's like, you know what you have to do. It, 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 this is not a mystery. If God's made himself clear to you. You know how to obey. You know what to do. It's not up in heaven, so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we might obey it. It's like, if you say, well, we don't know what to do. No, that's not true. And the same for us. I know those are exactly what God's will is. No, yeah, you do. You do. It's not beyond the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart, so you may obey it. You've been taught these things by your families and your elders and your mentors and your rabbis. You know these things. You've spoken them. You know them by heart, and they're in your heart. It is very near you. The word is very near you. And Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Not just the word of God. The kingdom of God itself has come near. Repent and believe. Is this a new message? Not at its core, just repent. But what's new about it is that God himself is saying it, and God himself has arrived. The time has come. All, when he said, the time has come, all that has ever happened to, with regard to God's people in, in history and throughout, this is the ultimate moment. God himself has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So let's finish this. What now marks, identifies the people of God? It's not an external mark. It's not a physical mark. What is it? Is it what we do? No. Is obedience important? Absolutely. Is it the mark? No. 
Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteousness, but sinners to repentance. What marks the Christian? Let's pretend I'm a Christian. That's a joke. Let's <laughs> set up a hypothetical. The person standing before you is a Christian. What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. Uh, my marriage uh, suffers because of the sinfulness of my own life, uh, the mistakes I made in my life before I even met my wife. My marriage in God's eyes is less than ideal. He sees what I bring to the table. Uh, there are lies I have yet to understand that I'm believing. When God looks at me, he, he sees that. Like I have yeah, a lot of issues. Some of which I will never escape. I've done permanent damage because of my thoughts. I have thoughts. I had, I had dozens of thoughts this morning that were ungodly. Not even necessarily would you say they were ungodly. They didn't seem all that bad. It would be just like, ah, I'm not sure. Um, I know what I'm talking about this morning. Right? right? I, have, I have doubts and thoughts, and um, maybe someone else should do the message. You know, there's just so much about me. What marks me is not that. So the winds of evil. I want you to imagine me just like in one of those weather channel storms with those moronic newscasters on the ocean beach, right? And his coat is flying to the left and his hair and his hat are hardly holding on. He's like, like, this is where we live. And you look at that person, you look at me and they're a wreck in there. Evil has got its hooks in and all of them like the velveteen rabbit. I'm a mess. And this, this right here is, the rock upon which we stand right here, just for illustrative purposes. This is me trusting Jesus, my hand right here. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't suddenly get all calm. This is what you have to imagine. Me, not looking very obedient, kind of some nasty thoughts, uh, lies that I still believe, Right? The wind's blowing my coat off, and you just imagine, <laughs> but like this, I'm just perfectly stable. I mean, my clothes are just, the coat's just wanting to get ripped off. My skin is going off on my face, but, it, but this is what it is. This is what marks a Christian is in Christ, I'm good. Forgiven. What is the identifier of a good Christian? A, 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 a beautiful Christian. It's not a perfect looking, perfect doing Christian. It is one. The, the, the best definition 
of a mature Christian is the one who is quickest to return to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. The, 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 the beautiful Christian is the one that is perpetually repentant. Hungry in the midst of difficult circumstances. Confessing and repenting of their susceptibility to lies. And that place is near. We no longer have to worry about being dispersed for 400 years and taken captive by, by wicked forces. We don't, we don't have to wander in the desert for 40 days. We don't have to be in for 40 years. We don't have to be in the wilderness for 40 days. We, we just need to say, I'm sorry, Jesus. I, I see it. I see it. I was, I was wrong. I wasn't trusting you. And it's just right now. We don't have to be apart from God for years and years. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to fix ourselves first. We just turn to Psalm 40. He lifted me out of the pit. He set my feet upon a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. God, we just want to tell you that we're sorry. We don't see very well. We don't respond very well. We don't obey very well. But we tell you this. We know evil wants to take us for a ride. We know evil wants to wreck us. But we tell you, we trust you. We also tell you that as best we can, we want to see the truth about ourselves and our world. And God, instead of it making us prideful, we just want to be humble and realize we're sinners and we need you. And the only good place is in your space. Thank you for being near. Thank you for your eternal, unrelenting, consistent grace, forgiveness, mercy. We do want to follow you. We want to follow your son. But we follow in a with a, with a grip on his hand that is unable to be broken. We, we follow while we live perpetually in your mercy and in your grace. 
and we obey because he walks us through every step of the rest of our lives. Thank you for being near. Thank you for being our mercy. Thank you for being our king. Help us to see. Help us to follow. Help us to be people that are continuously just repenting. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you may have picked up one of these cups, and this would be a wonderful time for us to remember what Jesus did to make all that forgiveness and all that mercy possible. So start tearing away at your cup here. Pull out that uh, piece of very thin cardboard. Peel off a little metal top. And what you have before you are not a piece of cardboard and grape juice, but a physical reminder of the work that Jesus did to circumcise our hearts, to provide all that we need. And so we, we take this and we say, okay, this bread... is a reminder of what you did. You, you, your body was broken for me. What I deserved, you took. What I couldn't earn, you earned. Of all the work that you've given me to do, you've done this, which I cannot do, and we eat it, and we say, thank you, God. Thank you for your son. And we remember what we don't want to remember about our Savior, He gave his last drop of blood, his last breath. Um, and we remember that through it, we do live. And what marks us is that truth, that gospel, that reality. And we drink and we put it inside us where the spirit now lives. And we're grateful. So let me give you 60 seconds or 90 seconds to um, not only drink in this moment of thanksgiving for his work, but to drink in his words, yeah, the truth. Uh, let me give you a, a little bit of time here to remember that you need him and that he's never too far, that he's near. Just take some minutes to yourself and then Justin will pray for us and we'll wrap it up.